There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to this week's Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of... Politics. They decided to deal with immigration and asylum uh, in exactly the same terms that, uh, that the right used and exactly the same tools that the right used. And culture. The novelist Rose Tremaine said that contemporary poetry is in a, a rotten state. Later on in this broadcast, we speak to David Edmonds about the game of chess. The World Championships are just drawing to a close. So what's the future of the game? Why does it have such a hold over the popular imagination? The fact that computers play each other is an important development in computer chess. They can also play themselves, of course. We'll hear more of that later in the broadcast. But first, I'm here in the studio with Samir Rahim, our culture editor. And also this time, Steve Bloomfield, who's our deputy editor. And over to you first, Samir, the Costa Prize shortlists have just been announced I gather and um, they're shortlists that you know quite a lot about. Well certainly the poetry one Um, I was lucky enough to be a judge for the Costa Poetry Prize um, this year we've selected four um, excellent collections Um, they were announced in the week in which um, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the value of modern poetry the novelist Rose Tremaine said that contemporary poetry is in a a rotten state Um, also Robin Robertson um, uh, a poet and editor has made critical comments about um, uh, uh, narcissistic Instagram era poetry, and it was just um, great to present four books to uh, to people, which were I think pretty brilliant. I'll just run I'll run through them. There's uh, Zafa Cuniel's Us, a first collection um, from Faber um, about um, identity and uh, childhood and. You know, it's a sort of outstanding collection bursting with multilingual puns and warm-hearted childhood reminiscences. It's a great, it's a great collection. There's Assurances by J.O. Morgan, uh, published by uh, Jonathan Cape, which is this extraordinary sort of epic poem um, about the 1950s and the Cold War uh, and nuclear power. Uh, a really unusual um, a book, but but fantastic. I hadn't actually read anything by him before, and it was a great, uh, 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 great delight really to um, to read it uh, soho by richard scott which is a sort of tribute to um modern gay life really and it is um you know very vulnerable um honest brave talks a lot about um some difficult kinds of experiences sexual feelings shame and it's yeah it's a it's a it's an outstanding co- uh, first collection as well uh, and the last one is three poems by hannah sullivan who uh, teaches at Oxford, I think, 
And these are, as the title says, three poems. Um, essentially, the first one is about living in New York and uh, the vibe is sort of HBO girls uh, uh, going to cocktail parties and sleeping with unsuitable men, um, but done in a kind of fizzing poetic diction that makes it a really addictive um, really addictive work. And there's two other sections as well, which are, uh, are, also, are also really interesting, um, about motherhood and also a sort of philosophical middle section. Mostly kind of one word titles there maybe the economy you'd uh, associate with some um, poets um but so you come away thinking poetry is actually in quite a good state despite all the grumpiness you were talking about. well it's funny you? it definitely has changed so the last time i judged a poetry prize was in 2011 and that was the forward prize and just simply you know we ended up with five very fine very good poets um on the short list they did all happen to be um uh middle-aged white men and uh, perhaps something that you might not be able to get away with these days. But there was definitely a, just a difference in what's being published now. Um, there was many, many more women poets there, um, I saw. Um, there were a lot of people who were writing um, about real life, you know, life as we experience it. Um, uh, there are people writing about, as I said, sort of different identities and families and relationships and um, living in the world. And I think that um, it's very easy to um, dismiss uh, new styles and new approaches to poetry, particularly if maybe you pick up two or three of the new Instagram poets and think, oh, God, this is just rubbish. Um, and, you know, we got some of those in and we looked at them and uh, considered them and, and, and dismissed some of them. But there's some of the same sort of themes of confession or um, uh, uh, talking about um, the individual in society uh, these are long-standing themes of of, of poetry, um, going back to you know through Wordsworth and Whitman and and Sylvia Plath. I don't think it's anything particularly new in that sense. Um, and also, it, once you get an overview of everything, you realise there's some people doing that kind of thing not very well, and there's some people doing that kind of thing very well indeed. It was ever thus, perhaps? Well, yes. I mean, yeah. And um, but it definitely felt. Um, I felt invigorated by having to read all these books. It was great to have an hour set aside at the end of the day where you just had to read a poetry collection. It did slow you down, make you think differently um, about words and, and about the world as well. And I'm, I'm very pleased with the selection that we've come up with. And one of those critics you named at the start, Robin Robertson, has himself just won uh, a major prize. Yet you're not the hugest fan of his, it's fair to say, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Am I revealing too much about the judging process? I'm not sure. But uh, yes, we did have Robin Robertson's The Long Take um, uh, under consideration. It's just won the Goldsmiths Prize. It was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, I'm afraid that it didn't do anything for me at all um, as a book. Of, uh, as a book. Um, I felt it was something rather sort of second, second-hand about it. Um, Others uh, may well feel differently, and it's had uh, huge amounts of success. But um, no, I'm very happy with the ones that we've chosen. How difficult is this? Uh, are these collections you're looking at? You know, and the, the kind of—is it more like a kind of Wordsworth that anyone could pick up, or is it more like a the wasteland where you need to study it for ages to have any idea what's going on? I think that the Costa Prize is meant to be a prize um, at the slightly more popular end of things but i would say that while all these collections are definitely readable you can pick them up and and sort of certainly with um the three debuts that we're talking about get what they're trying to do quite 
quite easily. Um, the E.O. Morgan perhaps takes a bit more um, effort and, and reading. But they all reward rereading, which is what we did uh, a number of times. And, um, you know, as Elliot said, poetry can communicate before it's understood. Something can mm. grip you and stop you in your tracks without you quite knowing what it actually means. And then half the fun of it is going back over it and, and trying to delve deeper into it, some, you know, layers of meaning. So I wouldn't be too scared of them, Tom. OK, thank you very much, Samir. Um, now, Steve, um, you're um, having a think about one of the issues of the hour, which for once isn't Brexit, but it's Brexit related. And it's sort of immigration. Yes, yes, indeed. Th- there's been a lot of talk um, it's certainly in the past few days, but obviously over the last couple of years, uh, about what some people are calling populism, but what we should really call sort of hard right or even far right authoritarianism. And uh, Hillary Clinton made an intervention last week where she claimed that uh, Europe and the centre left needed to get a handle on immigration, uh, was her argument. She said that you need to get a handle on immigration uh, in order to defeat the far right. And the thing that struck me about it was that she clearly uh, has forgotten all about new Labour because that's exactly what the Labour government did from 1997 onwards. They they decided to deal with immigration and asylum uh, in exactly the same terms that, uh, that the right used and exactly the same tools that the right used. Uh, and it had no effect whatsoever. Well, New Labour would um, say, or like analysts of New Labour would say, that this is simply what New Labour always did. It was trying to give contradictory messages as it triangulated. So, um, yeah, sure, it was very tough on bogus asylum seekers, the great phrase of the time, and also um, in relation to making it easier to deport criminals, all kinds of crackdowns all over the place. But then on the one that really did turn out to move the numbers immigrants from Eastern Europe after the EU expanded, they took a very liberal um, approach. So is it not a bit more of a sort of balanced approach than you're you're caricaturing? Um, I don't think it is really. I think the thing with uh, EU uh, freedom of movement after the the 10 additional states joined uh, in the mid-2000s is that, first of all, uh, they didn't think very many would come. There was the the, the infamous Home Office uh, um, report, which suggested it could be as few as 13,000 a year. Um, they saw a reason for not having uh, a transition process here, whereas they did in, in most other countries, as something that would be good for the economy. Mm. Um, and I think when we're talking about um, immigration on the whole, actually the debate in the 90s and 2000s was about asylum seekers. And you look at the language around that, you know, you had, uh, for example, you had vouchers for asylum seekers. So the, the indignity of saying you can't even have benefits, we're going to give you vouchers. And when you queue up at the supermarket, you've got to hand over these vouchers so everyone will know that you're different. Um, you won't get change for them as well. So the money goes even uh, uh, can't go very far. Um, there's the indignity of then being told, actually, that's not an essential item. You were told what you could spend it on. So toothpaste sometimes wasn't mm. considered essential or a razor wasn't considered essential. And the language that they use. So, you know, David Blunkett was Home Secretary in 2002, talked about asylum seekers swamping schools. Um, He talked about asylum cheats, the bogus asylum seekers, as as you mentioned them. John Reid, who was a a Home Secretary in the late 2000-2007, referred to foreigners coming to this country illegitimately and stealing our benefits. Um, And the... 
the interesting thing is that if you take Hillary Clinton's argument at face value, then this should surely work for Labour because they are, as you say, acting tough and cracking down. And actually it didn't. Ipsos Mori did a series of polls throughout the decade where they asked voters um, what issues were most important to them and then who they trusted to uh, deliver on those. In 2008, after all of these policies, just 5% of voters who thought immigration was important trusted Labour compared to 46% of the Conservatives. So this argument that, well, if you use the language of the far right and you have the policies of uh, cracking down, acting tough, then somehow that will help you are just not true. And yet, Samir, it was a time, regardless of the policy, the practice was of um, really quite, by historical standards, historically um it was a period of rapid net migration and then we ended up in the end with the tories coming in with this um we'll get net migration down to the uh below 100,000 didn't we yes and also i see today that the the sun newspaper um, not usually regarded as um uh, a friend of uh, immigrants uh, described the 100,000 um, cap on immigration as being um, something that the only the prime minister believes in and should be should be abandoned. So maybe we're going in slightly another direction. I suppose it's the difference between rhetoric and what is reality or even perceived reality. If people feel like politicians are telling them they're cracking down on asylum seekers or immigration or, or whatever, uh, they see their perhaps their communities changing culturally, different languages being spoken, the people they employ. As uh, uh, as babysitters or as um, uh, plumbers or having s- different accents, people notice that kind of change, and maybe it produces reactions that um, you know does have political consequences ultimately. So I, I wonder whether um, it's a question of whether politicians need to explain to people why immigration is happening, um, why it's needed, perhaps, and also. Um, you know, spend the money to um, bring in special teachers or expand education or or, or to do something that or or build more houses or or, or whatever that in order so all the sort of um, cultural anxiety which is of course linked to economic anxiety um, um, isn't quite so combustible a a process there's parts of that I'd I'd certainly agree with I think a lot of the planning around this was 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 awful you had um, groups of asylum seekers who were dispersed so to they were sent from towns and cities where there might already be uh, an immigrant population or a mixed population to places where there weren't. And so, for example, there were some, you know, there are asylum centres that were planned to be built in villages of 150 people. Now, if you were to bring in 750 white middle-class people into a village of 150, that village of 150 would be up in arms. Um, quite aside from then saying these people are, are going to be different from you. So that there is that aspect. But just to go back to what you said about um, people feeling about, well, if you know people around them are different, their areas are changing. Actually, where areas changed, there there was on the whole high support for immigration. You look at you know London is one example where there is high support for immigration. There was high support for the uh, for Britain remaining in the European Union. It's the areas where it is actually almost like. 95% plus white and white British and has been for three or four generations it's those places where there's this sort of fear of the outsider and racism uh, sorry I know you said cultural anxiety but let's also be honest some of what we call cultural anxiety is like a polite way a politically correct way if you 
like uh, of saying racism. Okay, that one I'm sure is going to run and run on the left and elsewhere. Um, But for the moment, thank you very much, Steve, as well as um, Samir. But now we're going to go in to our main interview this week, which Samir has also done, which, as I mentioned, is with David Edmonds on the intense, brilliant and confounding world of chess. David, thanks for being here. Um, tomorrow sees the start of the World Chess Championships um, between Magnus Carlsen and uh, Fabiano Corana, certainly at the time of uh, the time of recording. And chess heads like yourself are going to be getting pretty excited about it. How are they both shaping up? It's going to be a really, really exciting match because it's almost impossible to predict. The gap between them is very narrow. Carlsen is not at the peak of his performance. And he's got several people who are snapping at his heels. It was widely assumed that he would dominate for possibly a generation like Kasparov. But it's now looking like there's three or four of them who are potentially challengers. Karana is one of them. We'll find out in the next few weeks whether he can take the crown. And how long are they playing for? Are they, they're doing it over a few weeks, aren't they? They're playing over three weeks, 12 matches. It's the first person to get to six and a half points. You get a point for a win. You get half a point for a draw. And they get a few rest days. Uh, most of the games will begin in the afternoon and they'll go on until they finish for reasons we may be about to discuss. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I remember... We'll get into that. I remember um, first watching chess... Um, being broadcast on television in, I think, oh, the late 90s, oh, 1993. No, probably, I, that's what oh, I first remember okay. it being. Yes, I'm sure it was before then. Um, but it was the Kasparov versus um, Nigel Short games, which everyone made a big fuss about. Um, well, that was the last time they were in... I mean, they, they, they were played in London. Yeah. So it was a big deal here. And it was a British challenger. It was a British challenger. Not one with much chance. <laughs> one with very little chance. That result was not a surprise, but he did brilliantly to mm. uh, get there. And he still hovers around the top 100 in the world, Nigel Short. So he's a still a very, very strong player. He's exactly my generation. He's a year, uh, he's a, he's a year younger than me. So we, we sort of, I grew up watching him. Uh, I played in a tournament when I was nine. I think he was eight and he was already the best in the country then. Um, this is going to be a much closer game. And um, so for chess fans, it's going to be a more interesting spectacle. And just a few years after um, that, uh, the 93 World Championship, we had the, the, the famous um, Gary Kasparov versus uh, IBM Deep Blue, where he was defeated for the first time. And you write in your excellent piece in Prospect that although that seemed that seemed to be a watershed moment in the sort of man versus machine, um, but now the idea that computers are more advanced at chess than humans is just completely normal. Yeah, it's astonishing to think how far we've progressed. This was a turning point. It was described in humanity. Uh, Chess programmers have been trying to beat uh, chess players, human chess players, for years. And Kasparov was one of several people who was confident that it wasn't going to be done, at least not for quite some time. And it was a heck of a shock. He probably should have won that game. He was psychologically discombobulated by various things that went on during the match. He was probably still the strongest player. But nonetheless, it was inevitable that it was going to happen quite soon around that time. And now it's got to the stage where 
that phone in your pocket, you could take it out, download a chess app, and it could be the best chess player in the world. That's where we are now. How has that affected the game in terms of um, technique, how people approach the game, um, the enjoyment they get out of it? I think there was a concern that it would be the end of professional chess once the machines took over. But I guess an analogy might be that there could have been a concern at some stage that the motor car would be the end of athletics. And in fact, we still enjoy watching athletes compete in a stadium because human combat is just quite interesting to watch. And it turns out that we still enjoy watching humans and all their foibles, their idiosyncrasies, their different styles competing with each other. Nonetheless, it's transformed the game in all sorts of ways. Their preparation is completely changed. They can, uh, opening preparation is, has been changed because they can uh, look through their chess programs and see what works, what doesn't work. So often, that uh, until move 14, move 15, they're playing moves that they've already seen before, they've played on the computer already. Um, and it's sort of, um, it, it's meant also the end of the adjournment. So um, not so long ago, chess, the chess matches were adjourned after five hours because that's an exhausting amount of time to play chess. And now they can't do that because if you go off and analyse the game, you just put your chess computer on and you can see how you can proceed. So now they have to play the games until right to the very end. But in addition to that, it's opened up the imagination in some way. It's stretched the imagination. It's opened up possibilities for play that didn't exist before. Different ways of playing the game because chess computers in some way play in a slightly different way to humans. For example, they're less uh, determined to hang on to material. Humans like to be ahead. They like to have their rook ahead of their bishop or something called the exchange ahead. Uh, computers only care about one thing, which is winning the game. And if that involves in the short term losing material, well, sh so be it. And humans have picked up a bit of that. Interesting, because Nigel Short in your piece says that he always wants to sort of get the reward. If he's going to give something up, he wants to get something back pretty quickly. Yeah, he that said, is a very human instinct, isn't yes, it? Yes, he says in the piece he, he, wants to, he wants checkmate or something in three moves. He's joking, of course. Yeah. He doesn't expect it to... Uh, he doesn't expect to return within three moves. But he wants to know that if he's going to give up material, there is a very, very good chance that he's going to win it back or checkmate or whatever quite soon down the line. Computers can play the long game. They don't need to, need to play the, the short game. I mean, of course, computers are now playing each other, aren't they now? And, and, and there is a sort of competition between different programmes. Um, but I imagine that, you know, do, do people watch those games? Do people, do, do they observe, you know, the Stockfish versus Alpha, Go or whatever? Are those interesting for observers? Uh, they do watch them because it's like watching two artists in a sense compete and they throw up extraordinary positions extraordinary games and humans can learn from them they're not so interesting obviously from a psychological perspective they're not interesting at all from a psychological perspective but from a chess perspective they're still interesting to observe the fact that computers play each other is an important development in computer chess and they can also play themselves of course what the chess machine needed to get to the 
level it's got. It needed two things. It needed computer processing power and it needed a database. A combination of those two things has enabled chess computers to, to leap ahead. Uh, they need the processing power to just for brute calculation and they needed the database to learn from positions, to learn how they should proceed. They've now got those two things in place for the first time in history and that's why we're seeing such amazing advances in chess and in other areas. And they can learn incredibly quickly now, can't they? Phenomenally quickly because they can play each other a zillion times, you know, rapidly uh, and within 24 hours from nothing they can be champions. And that's just by a combination, as I say, of their processing power and learning from all these games, learning what works, learning different patterns, learning heuristics, learning that this is in this sort of position, this is where the knight belongs. In this sort of position, you need to open up the position for the bishop and so on. In this sort of position, we can afford the, for the king to be exposed. They're learning from all these games, this huge database, and they're learning very quickly. In terms of uh, the fans and the observers, in, uh, I remember in, um, in 93, uh, you'll be watching the game and you'd just be very reliant on the commentators, obviously, because they would be explaining to you what was going on. Um, but now you can just put the game into your machine as it's going on and you can be you know, you can be playing better than Carlson in your own world because you've got you can predict what's going to happen. And how has that changed the way that the fans interact with the the, the grandmasters? Yeah, the commentators have lost their godlike status. The grand the grandmasters have lost their godlike status. Now anybody sitting in their bedroom watching the game live can have their chess computer running and can see that. Carlson or Caruana has made an error and Stockfish, one of the computer programs, will tell you that, that it hasn't made the precisely accurate move. And then you get all these comments from people around the world, how old Caruana, what an idiot, what a patzer in chess language, a patzer means a bad player, what a patzer. Uh, absurd, of course, because even when they can sit see from their computer program that Carlson hasn't made the right move. They don't understand why it's not the right move. It takes a computer to understand that 15 moves, 20 moves down the line, the move that Carlson has played doesn't turn out to be the most optimal move. The spectators don't need, don't know that. But of course, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of sledging and, 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 and talking to each other as though now they understand the game, which they do not. And speaking with your philosopher's hat on, I mean... What can we learn from the way that chesses and artificial intelligence have progressed in the last 20 years? I mean, does it tell us a lot about the potential, um, but also maybe what it can't do and what it can't replace? Well, I'm either optimistic or pessimistic about the future of computer powers and artificial intelligence, depending on how you interpret it. I think it tells you a lot. So chess is a very circumscribed game. It has fixed rules. There are 64 squares. The chess pieces can't jump off and take your job. You know, they're stuck within a small enclosed world. Nonetheless, what the chess computers have done in chess can be taken and put in other worlds. And uh, machine learning, which is, has been so instrumental to the chess 
algorithm uh, is now being used in all sorts of other different areas, in health, in law, in a bunch of different areas. And computers are beating us now at chess. Well, we're already getting stories that they're better than us at working out scans of uh, moulds on our skin. They're better than the best dermatologists. There was a story just very recently that actually they're better at working out uh, legal precedent than some of the best lawyers. I think uh, we're going to be in for a shock over the next 10, 15 years when we discover that this combination of computer power and machine learning shows that computers are better than humans in a whole bunch of domains that we thought we were the masters of. Is that something necessary to be pessimistic about? Because if they can do a lot of the sort of boring, sort of routine tasks and we can pass on to them, we can be you know, freed up to do all sorts of other creative things. That's why I said I'm either pessimistic or optimistic, depending on your perspective. There's lots of good aspects to that. So uh, we are going to have a lot more time to do other things. On the other hand, in the past technological innovation has always created a bunch of jobs um, as well as shedding jobs so new jobs have been created it's not so easy this time and we'll see how it pans out to see what jobs are going to be created so it may be that we're going to have to reimagine how we live and our leisure work balance which might be very difficult and come with a whole bunch of social ills Dave just uh, talk a bit more personally now um, when did you first start playing chess and was your interest in it sparked by your interest in philosophy were they related at all <laughs> My interest in chess uh, predated my interest in philosophy by about 20 years. So I started playing chess when I was five or six, probably. It was taken to a chess club, uh, Hayes Chess Club in South East London. And I played a great deal till I went to university. I played quite seriously. I was a decent junior. Um, so I was sort of probably about, I was, I was part of that generation, the post-Fisher generation, really. So um, I started playing in about... Um, well, I, I started playing in about 1970, probably, and then Fisher Spassky was 1972. And my generation of British chess players was very strong because there was this burgeoning of chess in Britain as well as in America because of Bobby Fisher. And Nigel Short is part of that generation, um, it was quite clear early on that although I was a decent player, I wasn't a great player, thank God, because two of my friends have gone on to become professionals, two of my old chess friends, and uh, I look at their lives and I think, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle. Unless you're in the top 15 in the world, 20 in the world, it's difficult to make ends meet. There was a period around the time of the Bobby Fischer Boris Spassky match where there was a lot of money in chess and professionals could make a good living. That's no longer the case. Uh, but I still love chess. I gave up because it was so antisocial when I got to university. But I love it. I love the fact that um, I can just cut off 
everything about the world. When I'm in a chess game, I'm just lost from all the problems of the world. I'm not worrying about water bills or rows with the boss. It's just the chess. And I can spend hours, I could spend days just watching chess and be very happy. Absolutely. We were in the office, actually, as we were putting this, um, editing this sto- uh, this piece of yours and putting it to bed, uh, we started just playing a few games just against each other. And uh, Mike, if you're listening, you did beat me two one. But uh, you know, I'm in training, and uh, I'll get I'll get I'll get you back. I'm sure. Um, I hope. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is. I mean, just as something that to do during the day where we just spent, you did one game a day and it was just over a few hours and waited half an hour, would do your work, come back and suddenly it's a bit of a sort of shift in mental perspective, isn't it? It's, it's very addictive it, and it, the complexity for a human is bottomless. And if you like solving puzzle, puzzles like I do, then every position is a puzzle and yeah it 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 can you can focus all your energies on a board and as i say just get lost in it you mentioned that um uh you're actually included in the batsford book of chess openings could you tell us about that particular honor yeah (laughs) i uh i played a school game and uh well i was board one for the school and it was against the um old boys of the school and well our best old boy was ray Keane, who um was one of our first grandmasters famous chess writer now. famous chess writer and so i was playing ray Keane. i played against the closed sicilian i thought i would had a very good position actually it often happens when you're playing a very good player that you think you're doing okay and then in the analysis they explain to you that in fact you're lost a long time before you were aware of it and I played a position I thought I was doing fine and then he put it in the book a book co-written with Kasparov actually so it's not just uh, uh, written by Keane it's written by one of the great chess players of all time they put the game in the book as, as an illustration of how not to play the game so that's not one of my high points. My high point actually in chess was that I was part of a group of um, British juniors selected to play the former world champion Smyslov, the the, uh, Soviet world champion, and I won. I wasn't the only one. I think we might even have beaten them. We were a very powerful squad. And um, uh, so beating uh, one of the ex-world champions is is the highlight of my chess career. That's definitely how you'd prefer to be remembered in the, in the chess world. So how are you going to be following the games? Are you going to be, is it going to be on your phone? Are you just are you going to be reading the reports? And- I'll be following on uh, the internet. I'll be following my, uh, my friend Danny King's analysis on his uh, YouTube channel and I'll be going along. So um, I'll be going at, le- at least a couple of times. And when I go along, I'll, I'll sit in the auditorium a bit, but I like going into the analysis room and watching the grandmasters talk about what's going on in the game and uh, I'll while away quite a few hours doing that thank you Dave been a pleasure thank you that was David Edmonds there talking to my colleague Samir Rahim and to read David's article on chess visit our website prospectmagazine.co.uk where you can find all sorts of great stuff on politics global affairs arts culture science and more 
I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Steve Bloomfield here in the studio and the December edition of Prospect, which you guessed it, has got a lot about Brexit in it, is in the shops now. Be sure to pick up a copy. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast and it really helps other listeners to find us. So please do that. Be sure to join us again next week for the Prospect Podcast.